Today in class, I started talking about the essence of practice and how in, in our culture or in our subculture of, of yoga, influenced by probably heavily by American values, there's without even recognizing it, there's a notion that when I'm practicing, when I'm practicing meditation or yoga or prayer or whatever it is that I'm practicing, that there is in some way something I'm practicing toward a kind of state or a goal of some kind that I'm trying to accomplish or reach, a kind of attainment. You know, in, in the world of yoga or, or various spiritual disciplines, there are all sorts of attainments that are spoken of, different types of goals or realizations. Practice is something much more immediate, much closer. Because what we can find when we look at these ideas, these models of practice that involve striving or achieving or attaining certain states or certain experiences, is that there's also within it a very subtle, not sometimes not so subtle, <clears throat> opposition of about where you are or an opposition about who you are. And so quite often practice becomes a the discipline of becoming something more than you are or better. And while it is understandable that from our place or our experience of struggle that we would want to be somewhere better than where we are, there's a confusion that goes on because what we don't see is that a great deal of our struggle comes simply from trying to be somewhere other than where you are. So we find ourselves often in a paradoxical kind of loop. And it can be a loop full of, of self-torture and um, a loop full of, um, you know, really good spiritual ideas <laughs> that somehow what we're experiencing or who we are isn't enough. And so we very subtly begin to strive to become something more. You know? And we all have within our egoic framework a sense of inadequacy. Within every ego, it is the indisputable law of ego that it feels inadequate. It feels insufficient, unworthy, not enough. Because... Uh, it is. <laughs> I mean, really, if we're just like flat, you know, kitchen sink honesty, the ego is not enough. 
how can the ego be enough when your real nature is eternal? You know, how could this limited experience that we call ego be enough? So there's always this sense of inadequacy that plagues the ego. And what we don't often see is that what we call spiritual practice is really a method of trying to get to some kind of egoic adequacy. That I want to feel like enough, or I want to feel worthy, or I want to feel adequate, or I want to feel powerful, or I want to feel like I know enough. And, you know, despite years of effort or striving, we keep sort of coming upon the same truth. Or we keep failing, let's put it that way. We keep failing in that endeavor. And, uh, you know, something in us often then says, well, I'm not practicing hard enough, or I'm not practicing enough, or I don't have the right technique, or I don't have the right teaching or teacher, or, you know, endless number of conclusions we make about that. But here we are, actually face-to-face with our own experience of inadequacy. If there's a more fruitful situation to be in, I don't know what it is, right? But we interpret that as a very bad sign. We interpret it as this spiritual practice is not working because there's still this inadequacy here. Yes. And it'll be here five years from now and 10 years from now and 20 years from now, so long as we are approaching practice in the way that we are, which is to get over or get beyond or get through or somehow transcend this experience of being inadequate because it's so ugly. You know, and I don't even know that it's the experience of being inadequate that's ugly as much as everything we do about that, (laughs) you know, like feeling inadequate and trying to prove to someone else that we're adequate or feeling inadequate and, you know, going and earning some kind of degree that makes us feel adequate, you know, all sorts of techniques that we have to feel adequate. And but there it is again, you know, it's the one sort of thing that we can't seem to eliminate. And often what will happen then is we sort of torture ourselves as though we're not doing something right or, or, you know, we're not disciplined enough or we're not, I don't know, we're not wise enough. But the reality is, is that we're just facing the truth that the ego, who we have taken ourselves to be, is inadequate. It absolutely is inadequate. Why is it inadequate? Because it simply doesn't exist. The ego has no real existence and therefore it can have no real adequacy. And we're face to face with that. And if we're not face to face with that, we come face to face with that in given moments. You know, when someone doesn't treat you the way you want to be treated or things don't go your way, you know, it then surfaces. But it surfaces not as some kind of like punishment or, you know, weaponry to be used against yourself, it arises as a moment to be seen for what it is, to see that ego inadequacy for what it is. And if we miss that opportunity, it's okay, we'll have another opportunity. It'll come around again, you know. Luckily, not luckily, luckily, it comes around again, you know, so that it can be seen, so that it can be experienced. Um, And so, with what I was saying this morning in practice, 
in a sense, we have to understand that practice does not mean conquering some part of ourselves or overcoming some part of ourselves or defeating it. That practice is uh, more like giving up the war, you know, giving up the opposition. You know, there's mild forms like opposition or resistance. Opposition is something you just push a little bit against, right? Resistance, you're just pushing a little bit. Fighting, you got a little bit more aggression behind it. And then there's full-blown war, you know, where you've got your tanks and your missiles and all of it. And, you know, there are various degrees. Some things in ourselves we go into opposition with, some things we fight, and some things we go to war with. But the one thing that, you know, always remains true is that whatever we're in resistance to, whatever we're fighting with, wherever we're at war with, just simply continues. It just keeps going. And so, you know, and the uglier something is in us, you know, when we uncover a little pocket of our own arrogance or we uncover a little pocket of our own greed or jealousy or hatred or, you know, fear, whatever it is that we dislike about our experience, you know, that's where we go into opposition. That's where we say, no, not this. I'm turning away from this. I'm going to figure out how to eliminate this. I think I'll email my teacher and see how I can figure out how to eliminate this thing, you know, or I'll go read the Bhagavad Gita and see what it says about eliminating my jealousy. Oh, it says, you know, don't be attached to the outcome, the result of of my actions. Okay, I'll try that. I'll try that and see if that gets rid of my jealousy. I think it worked. I think the Bhagavad Gita is right. I think my jealousy is gone, you know, and then you're sitting next to your coworker at the desk next to you who just gets a promotion when you deserved it. And there it is again. There's the jealousy all over again. You know, nah, Bhagavad Gita is bullshit. I'll go to the Tao Te Ching. We'll see what the Tao Te Ching says about it. I don't know. You know, we all have our own processes. But there's this way, you know, in which we think that our practice is the practice of becoming awake or the practice of becoming more compassionate. And of course, that's our intention. But what we subtly miss is the way in which our practice is actually the practice of opposition or war. Because our spiritual practices are not intended to overcome or get rid of the things we don't like. If anything, the practices are just the opposite of that. To be able to embrace and love and welcome the things you don't like. right? But it's very difficult for most of us to see that because it is so usual that as soon as something that you don't like arises, you just want to figure out how to get rid of it, right? I mean, don't, isn't that what we do? And, uh, you know, and then the ego is the big one. You know, it's like if we could put together all the things we don't like about ourselves, that's typically what someone's definition of the ego is, right? Is all that I don't like about myself. But what if you under, what if you just, someone came along, what if an angel came to visit you and said, your ego is actually everything you love about yourself. Wouldn't that like spin everything around 180 degrees? Wouldn't that turn everything on its head? I mean, I'm not saying that's the truth. I'm just saying, what if that happened to be true? What if your ego wasn't the things you dislike about yourself at all? You know? Usually if I say something like that, people start feeling a little bit upside down. It's sort of like, well, then what am I doing in my practice? Which is just the right mindset to enter. Like, then what the hell is my practice for? 
you know? And that becomes a really good question. What is the practice for? Is your practice simply for eliminating something? You know? Are you like a, a scout with your rifle on the, what's it called? The parapet? On the parapet, ready to snuff out any of the enemies that come looking, you know, and you're going to defend your fortress of ego, <laughs> you know? And, but that's often what we do, you know? It's like we're on the parapet with the rifle, ready to snuff out anything that comes to challenge our self-idea, our self-image. So if we can see this tendency to go into opposition or to go into war or to go into fighting with the things that arise in us, if we can see it for what it is, then we understand practice in a very different way. That practice is one of relaxing. Practice is one of opening. Practice has nothing to do with eliminating things. I know if you want, you know, of course you can go to all the teachings and scriptures and you can find plenty of evidence. You'll find endless books that will tell you how to kill your ego. You know, there's numerous scriptures and teachings out there that will teach you about how bad your ego is and how badly you need to kill it and eliminate it and go beyond it and transcend it. And, you know, maybe for those teachers or for that particular culture, there was a different understanding. But in our culture, it's a, it's a culture of war. It's a culture of opposition and fighting. And it gets us nowhere. It really gets us nowhere. You know? So the real question is, is um, can we relax? You know? Can we stop picking at ourselves long enough? Can we stop trying to fix ourselves long enough, change ourselves, improve ourselves, better ourselves, perfect ourselves long enough? And it doesn't take long, just a few moments, to see that there's actually something here that does not need improvement, that doesn't need any bettering. There's something here in you, and I promise you this, even though you may not be aware of it in the moment, there's something in you that is not in opposition to anything. You know, when your jealousy arises, when your fear arises, when your confusion arises, there's still something in you that is in a completely non-oppositional attitude toward that. Even if your mind or your emotions or everything else goes into, you know, fight or flight, goes into war, conflict with this arising, there's still something in you that isn't at war. And in meditation, what I was suggesting to just relax, to just keep relaxing, it's really that that we're referring to, is to relax deeply enough to see, to touch, to feel, to know very intimately that part of ourselves that's not trying to accomplish anything. It's not trying to perfect. It's not trying to get somewhere else. It's not trying for a bigger, better state. You know, it's not striving. And it's also not uh, indulging. It doesn't, it's not um, caught up in our stories and our, our dilemmas, you know. But we understand, of course, that it's a, it's a very deep habit of going to opposition. It's a very deep habit of indulging our stories and dilemmas. But it's not one we have to overcome. You see, I think that's one of the problems we have in our spiritual culture is we understand, we have a pretty good, most of us have a pretty good understanding of our habits, the habits that perpetuate our ego. 
but we're still operating from mindset that those are things that need to be gotten rid of rather than things that need to be understood or embraced. You know? So when our mentality shifts from one of opposing, fighting, warring to one of embracing or allowing, that's where we see a shift. That's where we see a change in our experience. Because it's not your greed that is the problem. It is not your jealousy that is the problem. It is not your fear or your confusion or your hatred or your resentment. It is your opposition to that within you that is the problem. Does that make sense? If your jealousy arises, there's nothing in existence in conflict with that until you conflict with that. And the reason why we act out jealousy, greed, fear, violence so uh, in such an ugly way is not because jealousy, fear, and all of those things are there. It's because of the opposition to it. If you have opposition to your own anger, you'll end up violent. If you have embrace of your own anger, you will not be violent. Do you see the difference? To embrace your anger, that embrace is a bigger or fuller state than the anger itself. But when your anger should arise and you oppose it, it's like friction. It not only takes the anger, but then it heats it up, makes it more not more viscous, more volatile, you know? And so the, the challenge of our practice is not only to embrace, not only to open to, not only to allow, but to really see the fundamental attitude of opposition, fighting and war when it comes to working with our experience. Because that's really the culprit. That's really the thing that's, that's at the bottom that's causing so much turmoil. You know? For years, I was afraid of flying on planes, and it wasn't extreme, you know, I didn't need to be drugged or anything, but I would just have this anxiety come, you know, when I was on a plane. And as I got involved in spiritual work, I started thinking, well, now I'm going to find a way to eliminate that. So every time I took a flight, I was intent on, now this time I'm not going to be afraid. This, oh, that didn't work, you know? I'd get uh, 10 feet off the ground and there I'd be, shaking again. And then the next time, I'm going to be even stronger this time. I'm going to beat that fear. I'm going to conquer that fear. And, you know, I don't know, this must have gone on for three or four years. And then there was this experience where I told myself before I got on the plane, I'm not going to be afraid this time. And there it was, you know, 10 feet off the ground, shaking and nervousness, sweaty palms, all those things. And it seemed to me in the moment pretty obvious that I wasn't going to conquer the fear. So it was just kind of like, all right, all right, you know, there it is, there it is. And as soon as I was in that moment of acceptance, the fear, the fear vanished, right? And what became so obvious in that experience was it wasn't the fear that was the problem. It was my opposition to my fear that was the problem, you see? And so whatever you're trying to change in yourself at any given moment, it's not the thing itself that's the problem. It's the trying to change it that's the problem. And when we understand where that comes from, we see that it comes from a very deep and very subtle tendency to be against yourself, fighting yourself, you know, opposing, warring with yourself. And this is a call to, you know, wave the white flag. 
This is a call to surrender the fight. You know, it's going to feel probably when we do that as though we are surrendering to the enemy. You know, you're surrendering to your fear. You're surrendering to your jealousy. You're surrendering to your greed, your hatred. And it's going to feel like that's the most uh, counterintuitive thing you could ever do. But the interesting thing is the result. That when we actually surrender to that thing that is there, rather than oppose it, there's a shift. There's a transformation that happens. You know? And especially those lifelong things that we carry with us. Those lifelong, you know, the things that we get, that we're busy sort of hiding so no one else sees. You know, you put it in your closet or your pantry where no one else can see it. That thing you don't want anybody to see about you. Your secret greed or hatred or fear or confusion or whatever. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> That's the one. You know, those are, those are the ones that are most needing our embrace. Because, you know, I don't know what your experience feels like, but for me, those things are the mortal flaws. You know, those are the things that make you a nasty, terrible, ugly human being in your mind. Until you embrace them. And the funny thing about that embrace is that to embrace your greed you realize your greed wasn't nearly as big as you thought it was. To embrace your fear, you realize your fear wasn't as big as you thought it was, you know? So to see this tendency to be in opposition and also to see even the resistance to stopping that, the resistance that comes to giving that up as a technique or strategy, you know? So that's a good point, because sometimes without even knowing what we're in opposition to, it becomes really pertinent to understand what you're in opposition to. Now, you know you're in opposition because there's a subtle state of, of conflict that goes on in your being, but it may not be obvious or clear to you, because, you know, we all learn from a very young age how to quickly uh, avoid certain things within ourselves, such as anger or fear or self-doubt, whatever. So it can, it's not always so obvious what I'm in opposition to. But it's interesting because even just as you begin to relax, as you begin to allow, you start to see subtle resistances come up to sort of defy that or say that's not okay. So that's, that's an important piece, you know. Not to dwell on, not in an analytical way, like, <coughs> Oh, what am I real? What am I in opposition to? You know, now I'm going to root out and snuff out my opposition. You know, now you're just the, the guy on the parapet behind the other guy on the parapet. <laughs> you know, so we have to, in a sense, basically, you know, we have to give up policing ourselves. You know, that way in which I don't think everyone has it to the same degree, but some people have it really strongly, and it tends to exist in spiritually minded people. That way of watching yourself looking for your flaws, looking for your problems. You know what I mean? That policing attitude. It's a big problem. <coughs> but it's not a big problem to develop another policing attitude about. <laughs> you know? There's something in us that is not trying to police, defeat, conquer, or get rid of anything. And that's the place 
when we gather that we're pointing to is that innate truth of one's being, that innate core of one's being, which is in opposition to nothing. The practice uh, that Sis is talking about is a useful one in this way, in several ways, but this would be one of them. When my fear arises, I go into opposition with it. But when your fear arises, I don't go into opposition with it. Why? Because it's not bothering me. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's bothering you. So I don't have any problem. So to place that fear in a form as other than you can be an important uh, way of, of working with this experience, you know? In other words, when the fear comes, we tend to just think, it's true to ourself, that it's real, that, it, that it's who I am or what I am or somehow inherent in my relationship to life. But it's not. It's not in exactly the same way that I'm not bothered by your fear. You know what I mean? In other words, what bothers you is what's personal to you. If we were taught at some point that it wasn't okay to be angry or it wasn't okay to be afraid or it wasn't okay to be powerful or beautiful or something, then when such a quality arises in your being, you go into opposition. So it's not just the negative things, you know. You can be taught that your beauty is something to be avoided or your power is something to be avoided or your love is something to be avoided. And in just the same way, go into opposition with something that you really want. And then we have a relationship where you both want it and resist it at the same time. So we are in a push-pull relationship with our own beauty. Does it bring anything to mind? Like the human condition, (laughs) the whole human experience. (laughs) Opposition is not innate, though it seems to be. It seems like it. You know, a child is able to experience an intense emotion very quickly and cleanly. You know, a child can move from absolute disarray to calmness in a matter of moments because the full scope of that emotional experience is allowed. They have not yet learned to be in opposition to that part of themselves. And so the emotion quickly comes and quickly goes. You know, And that is something that we are taught out of. We're taught out of the naturalness of our inner experience. And we're taught instead to manage it, control it. Mainly, we're taught the mechanics of altering our experience, you know? We're almost, in a way, taught out of everything that is natural to us and taught to adopt unnatural relationships to our experience. And that is, in a sense, what spiritual practice is, is unlearning that. Unlearning the unnatural forms that we've adopted to work with our experience. That doesn't mean we become a ch- like an immature child again. That's a misunderstanding. You know, if you take that to mean, well, when my anger comes, I'm just going to burst out and cry and kick and scream on the ground, like a little kid does. <laughs> it might. 
it might, and you're welcome to do that too. I mean, I'm not going to stop you. But, you know, there's a deeper truth at hand. You know, there's a deeper possibility than simply acting out. Uh, there's, a, there's an option available besides acting it out and besides trying to manage it, you know, which is that attitude of, you know, it's kind of like some, from time to time someone will ask me a question, like, what do I do about my anger or what do I do about my fear? And my answer is always very simple, nothing. And that's incomprehensible to the mind to do nothing about your fear. And it, even one begins, well, how do I do that? How do I do nothing? Start looking for a technique on how to do nothing. But to do nothing when something arises is a very powerful moment because in that moment, you're not doing anything to fix it. You're not doing anything to improve it. You're not doing anything to get rid of it. You're doing nothing. And when you do nothing about your anger, your fear, your greed, your beauty, your power, it's quite interesting what happens as a result of that. You know? Because we are so used to doing something about our experience. We're so used to interfering in some way. So keep in mind with this, this last piece mentioned is that this is not false hope. And your false hope will crumble. If you tell yourself, oh, my financial situation, it'll all be all right because I'll have X amount of dollars in there a year from now and I don't have to worry about it. This is not the kind of thing we're talking about. right? So understand that when we talk about everything being all right, everything is not going to be all right on many levels. <laughs> Right? Your body is going to die. Everything that you've acquired will be lost. Everyone that you've loved will be gone. Right? Those things aren't going to be all right. Not, not in that way. Not in a hopeful kind of way. But that when we're really in the truth of ourselves, everything is all right. So even if there is loss or a lack of money or you know, declining health, it's all right. So it's not an all-rightness that excludes hardship. It's an all-rightness that includes hardship. That's important to understand because if we walk away from a gathering such as this, telling ourselves it's all going to be okay, and then next week, you know, we get diagnosed with cancer, and it's, well, but I was believing that everything was going to be okay. There's going to be a massive disillusionment. So it's important that as we recognize that everything is okay, what and where we're talking about. And that that truth, that everything is okay, is there in the diagnosis of cancer too, right? So we are not speaking about fleeting attitudes that things will work out or things will be okay, but instead being established in that place within us that it is always okay. That's an important difference. Important only to save yourself a whole lot of false hope, <laughs> you know? I mean, we don't have any illusions about these things, right? The body's going to decline. If it's not already, it's going to. You know, relationships will be lost. Financial gains will be lost. Everything's going to be lost at some point. That's not where we're looking for things to be all right. In fact, that's the whole issue of security, the drive for security and self-preservation, 
is we're looking around us at our conditions and we're saying, how do I maintain these things? Because if these things fall apart, I fall apart. But that's not true. You know, it's really not true. Your financial situation can fall apart without you falling apart. Your health can fall apart without you falling apart. Physical health. You know? So that's an important thing to understand for us. Because I think there's a lot of spiritual ideas out there that suggest if you just open yourself, if you just get quiet, if you just meditate enough, or if you just surrender yourself enough, everything's going to work out for you. You're going to be made rich. Your body will become immortal. You'll never lose a relationship. Nothing bad will ever happen to you again. You know, And we want to place our faith in that kind of notion. But it's quite um, naive to do that. Because that's not the level where everything's okay. Everything's not okay in a worldly, physical, material sense. Everything's okay in, in the space that can't be touched by any of those losses or changes.